0: I miss a green for example I'm already upset when I find my ball in the bunker I'm really upset and when I find my ball in a fried egg fried egg the dreaded fried egg fried egg fried egg fried egg fried egg fried egg lie, I'm about ready to run off the golf course Welcome back to another edition of the fried egg podcast. Today's episode is with Thad Layton. Thad is the senior golf course architect and vice president at Arnold Palmer Design Company. So the company that uh, conducts all of the design work under the Arnold Palmer umbrella. Thad I've known for a number of years and I think he's been doing some pretty interesting stuff, uh, you know, given the reputation of Arnold Palmer design. And that's why I was really excited to talk to him. Obviously, a wildly different background than the majority of the architects that we have on this podcast. You know, one with a lot of different experiences than, you know, going to work for Pete Dye or going to work for Corin Crenshaw, whatever it may be. You know, he was building golf courses in far flung locations across the world. And he gets into stories from one of those, which uh, was quite the story. So I'm, I'm really t- excited to talk about. About uh, a golf design and and kind of Thad's unique experiences on this podcast. You know, one quick thing I did want to talk about. I wanted to talk about the Pebble Beach Pro Am and just something I found ridiculous, and I'm hoping eventually changes in America. Uh, the play. I don't know if some of you may not have seen it, but on Saturday it was windy, it was rainy, it was it was a rough weather day uh, on the Monterey Peninsula. And at MPCC, the wind created a situation along with the speed of the greens that the ball was not staying when when marked. And, you know, it it made it an unplayable condition. And they ended up pulling everybody off the golf course, uh, all three golf courses. So MPCC, uh, Pebble Beach and Spyglass. So while the problem was at MPCC, they pulled everybody off the golf course. They did. They halted play for the rest of the afternoon. And uh, this led to a Monday finish of an event that should finish on a Sunday. Obviously, that's big for the business of golf. Why these companies sponsor these events, one of the big reasons is for that weekend, valuable weekend airtime. And Saturday, they got basically none of it because of this incident. So... Obviously it was windy. It was it was tough weather but not anything that we haven't seen in Scotland and Ireland. And it gets to the underlying issue in in American golf is our fascination with fast greens. Now, I think one of the things is people think fast and smooth. Like those are two separate aspects of greens. And America's gone way too far with the speed of the greens. They have gotten way too fast. You know, you you see clubs across the country softening greens, softening greens that have been one way for 100 years to accommodate the increased green speeds. And this is just silly. This, you want to talk about things that make the cost of the game higher and unsustainable. It's doing work to soften greens because we want to have faster greens. You know, everybody talks about firm and fast. I talk about firm and fast. And I think that, like, what we miss is that, maybe what we should talk more about is firm and smooth and in the aspirational greens in golf are the ones that are really firm and really smooth, not necessarily fast. Uh, I think band and dunes pulls this off really well. The greens out there are really accommodating because they are slow. You know, they, they deal with heavy wind all the time. And they, a lot of those places, those Spots on those greens would become unputtable if the speed of the greens was really high. So what we saw at MPCC and really derailed the tournament, it was extremely playable in the afternoon uh, at Pebble Beach on Saturday, but it was unplayable because of the fascination with fast greens. And this is, you know, obviously the tour is one of the places that is, I would say they are one of the leading proponents of this. The greens are fast week in, week out, and they're expected to be fast. And in this case, they were too fast for the conditions. So slow down greens. Listen, that's going to save us time. It's going to lead to faster rounds. Fast greens, slow down pace of play. They cost more to maintain. And uh, the overall, they're just unnecessary. It's an ego thing. So let's slow the greens down, and we won't have incidents like at MPCC. We'll be playing golf in more weather, and it will be a better television product, hence why people love the open championship when the weather gets wild because these guys struggle, they have to grind and they have to play through it. And there aren't greens for the most part outside of what was it when Brooks was on the green and it blew outside of that, you know, for the most part, the open championship doesn't have these delays because they keep the greens a much more reasonable pace. Those are perfect examples of greens that are firm, but smooth. All right. After that long-winded intro, now to Thadley. All right, Thad, I, I got to ask, uh, and I should ask this more often, but I don't. When and what made you want to be a golf architect? I think it all
1: started when I was around 12 or 13, Andy. I got hooked on the game. Now, I'm originally from Gulfport, Mississippi. Not a whole lot of golf courses down there, but I did get to play at a muni called Treymark. And it was a golf course. It wasn't very elaborate. Uh, there were two bunkers in the entire course. There was a bunker on the ninth green and one on the 18th. So I was always redesigning this golf course in my mind. I was, uh, I was just completely smitten with the game, watching the tour events on the weekend. And noticed a big discrepancy between the course I was playing and the ones I was watching the pros play on the weekends. So, you know, I I just had this inclination, my mind was running wild of everything we could do with this golf course, Uh, but I loved the game and it wasn't too long after that that I was turned on to a book called The Anatomy of a Golf Course, I'm sure you're familiar with that, and uh, just dove headfirst into that book, absorbed it like a sponge, and that pretty much set the trajectory for me wanting to become a golf course architect. And you know, I was uh, 47 now, just turned 47 on uh, January 1st. And uh, so that's been 34 years now that I've been on this path and very, very fortunate. Um, I know there's a lot of people that kind of want to become golf course architects. And I think there are a lot of people out, out there that would have the skill to do that as well. Um, but again, I just feel really, really blessed to be able to do what I do uh, for a living.
0: So, you're one of the rare people that, like, as a teenager, if I asked you what you wanted to be, you would have been like, I want to be a golf architect. And you became a golf architect.
1: Yeah. I've talked with Jay Blasey about that. And I think he's probably the only other person that, maybe from a really early age, kind of do what they wanted to do. So, I I feel it's probably a rarity. I certainly didn't stumble into it uh, in college or after college. It was something that I really wanted to do. And, you know, it wasn't uh, all green lights either. I mean, everybody that I, I would talk to about becoming a golf course architect, whether they were in the business or were at the fringes, discouraged me from doing that. Talking, you know, told me how competitive it was to not only get in the business but stay in the business. Um, so, fortunately, I didn't listen to them, and uh, I was able to uh, to continue to kind of follow that dream, and and uh, and here I am today, still doing it.
0: That's what one of the nice things, if you attack it from a young age, is that when you're young, you have uh, a certain level of being naive, you know, and and unaware of how difficult things can be. I, you know, I think about this a lot is like if I knew everything I knew about golf media now, I would I probably wouldn't make it, uh, you know, doing this. This wouldn't have worked out because I would have been just too aware of of all the things that could go wrong um in in your career what would you say in in terms of breaking into this industry that's really hard to break into really you know as as you alluded to a lot of people said you know don't don't go into this as a business what what was the most challenging part of of establishing yourself in in the design world
1: the toughest part was just that first entry right i mean for me i was able to get into i was uh living in gulfport at the time there was an arnold palmer golf course that was being built about 45 minutes from where where i lived and i was able to get a job on the construction crew so i think that is you know that was the pathway for me without that i don't know if i would be working for palmer Maybe I might be working for someone else, but that was my entry into the golf course industry. Uh, you know, I, we get a lot of inquiries from from a lot of people that want to get into the business still to this day. And, you know, I, I try to write everybody back and, and try to counsel them on how to best get into the business. I think today the best path is construction, uh, but a lot of people don't want to hear that. They want to go straight into an office uh, but the business has changed a lot. But even when I started getting going straight into an office was uh, it was it, it was unlikely. The odds were stacked against you. So when people reach out to us, I try to encourage them to you know get a job with a golf course contractor, and that's how you meet architects. That's how you learn how to build a golf course from the ground up, and that's how eventually you become a good architect. I mean, I I, don't, I think the best architects in the business have some type of construction background. I'm not saying I'm one of those guys. I'm not saying I'm one of the best in the business, um, but the guys that I admire in this industry, um, a lot of the guys you interview uh, periodically, they they started out. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of them have a construction background. I, I know uh, Bill and Tom have uh, backgrounds with Pete Dye and how he considered himself a golf course builder first and foremost. So, I think that would be the best way to to get into the business and learn the most and stay in the business.
0: I feel like a common thread uh, among the people that I interview in this industry is is most of them did things and made sacrifices or went out of their way to make themselves indispensable uh, in order like un uh, you know not unable to not hire that person you know they they went above and beyond and i think that's the thing with like a with a highly competitive industry you have to do things that other people aren't willing to do in order to stand out and in in really set yourself apart um it, it you've had to have given arnold palmer designs you know international scope you know You've had to been all over the world. What what are a few? What's the craziest place? Like, what's the place when you think I can't believe I I was there for X amount of my life? What What's the place that you think of the most?
1: Kazakhstan.
0: <laughs> what, what? Tell me about building a golf course in Kazakhstan.
1: <laughs> well, it's not uh, Borat's version of Kazakhstan. Um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, that was that was my first opportunity. I'd worked for Arnold Palmer Design for three or four years full-time as a project coordinator. And this project came up, and I, they knew I wanted to be an architect. I was on track to do that. And the opportunity came up for this course in Kazakhstan. You would call it opportunity, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> There's different, different uh, levels of opportunity, right? Yeah,
1: it wasn't Carmel, but... <laughs> I, I jumped at the opportunity. I, I figured this would be a great opportunity, kind of make my bones. And they uh, they gave me the lead architect job there on. Uh, it was called Gelau, and it was a project for a big mining conglomerate in Kazakhstan that was doing this golf course as kind of a favor to the president to keep you know their mining rights in the country. So I remember you know flying from. Jacksonville, Atlanta, Germany, and then a six hour labor to, you know, catch the flight into Almaty, Kazakhstan. And it's like, man, I'm delirious. I, I've never <laughs> flown this far in my entire life. I, I show up like t- 10 hour jet lag, I get off the plane, and there's guys with submachine guns, you know, checking everybody out like, man, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> we get on the site and a guy named Ian Gannon, an Irishman was our, our project coordinator there. He said, man, we got big problems right off the bat. We have got 25 dozers out here, but only two of them work. They're all in excess of 50 years old. The tracks are falling off of them. The laborers don't even have proper equipment. You know, their pickaxes, the handles, they're whittling them out of trees in the morning. And by noon, the the pickaxes are broken and they're into their bottles of vodka. So I was like, man, this is going to be an uphill climb. So that was that was my first... Uh, Uh, probably most remote project that I had uh, as lead architect. And eventually it turned out all right. It took about a year to build a golf course. Ian was great. i would made probably six or seven site visits on that golf course. Today we like to make a lot more than that, but those are the heydays, right? We were opening, you know, 10 to 12 golf courses a year. Um, So we had a much different business model at the time. But uh, again, that was my first golf course. Very proud of the way that turned out with all the headwinds we experienced on that project.
0: What kind of concessions did you have to make with with the shoddy equipment <laughs> and you know uh, suspect crew, and, and then also like just like the lack of hand? Like, did did you have to change the design at all because of that stuff?
1: You know, I, I we had to back off of our design standards and specifications; otherwise, we'd still. <laughs> be there today, trying to get this thing <laughs> grassed, even when the golf course was grass, they had a superintendent that went out there over fertilized the golf course and basically killed all the grass and set it back <laughs> an entire growing season so yeah it, it was a new market it was it was a frontier, I guess it still is for golf, and that was. That was one of the cool things about working for Arnold Palmer's, being able to, you know, people talk about growing the game that turn gets overused, I think, in a lot of ways. But to be able to go to a market like that where people, even on the construction crew, when I got to go back and play the golf course for the first time, you know, right, right when the thing was growing in and I was out there with a set of golf clubs hitting shots and the guys that had been working on the golf course, you know, this light bulb went on their head and they were watching us play. They'd never seen anybody play golf before. They've been working on this project the entire time. The light bulb came on. It's like, man, this is what we've been working on. This is this is what this is for. They connected the dots, and so that was that was pretty cool.
0: What's been, I guess, in terms of, you know, you talk about like introducing the game to countries. I, I, you know, we we talk with a lot of architects that have limited scope in terms of of building golf courses in countries that are pretty new to golf. What, is there a way you approach courses, like say it's the first course in a country, uh, differently than if it's a, a golf course in America?
1: Maybe the most simple answer is no. I think you want to deliver a golf course that's capable of having a tournament there. And I think that a lot of those first markets, they're looking to have some type of event there. So you certainly don't want to try to design a golf course around... Uh, maybe a culture that's never played the game before. I mean, I, we've, we certainly try to create the ability to play our golf courses along the ground, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily easy for tournament play either. So I, I, I think maybe the simplest answer is yes and no. I mean, we, we want the golf course to be playable for for everyone. And I think the, the way you do that is, uh, you know, you're taking those tournament considerations uh, into account, but you're also taking the ground game and you know, trying to factor that in as well.
0: Yeah. You, you have to, it, that's gotta be a, an interesting challenge because you're in one part designing for the the greatest players in the world because they, you know, it, it make, you make a great, like most places that are building their first course have an idea of probably a DP world tour event or some, or an Asian tour event coming to play there. Um, but, then at this, on the other hand, you've got got, got people going out there that have never played the game before in their life playing this golf course.
1: Right. Yeah, you don't want to turn people off right out of the gate, but also you don't want to have a, you know, you mentioned DP World Tour, you know, whatever, uh, whatever event ends up going there. You don't want them to go out there and shoot 40 under par for the week either.
0: You talked a little bit about on-site time. You just brushed on this and the heyday of Arnold Palmer Design when you were doing 10 courses, uh, opening 10 courses a year. How has Arnold Palmer designed, uh, Design evolved really since you've been a part of it? It's been where you've been your entire career since your early 20s. And, and how have you seen the firm uh, evolve? Yeah, it's
1: completely different. Uh Again, going from 12 course grand openings a year and having 40 to 50, we used to have this huge project board. It was almost overwhelming. I mean, it was it was about 40 feet wide, this whiteboard that tracked all of our projects in the three different phases. And now I can kind of keep track of everything we're working on a little, on a little three by five note card. Um, but I think the trade-off there, you know, what we're sacrificing in volume, we're making up for in quality because we're spending so much more time on site. I just speaking about my own experience, I've, for the past five years, I've started to shape my own work. Uh, you know, I, I was down in Uruguay. Uh, just a side note about that project, you know, it was post-pandemic. We couldn't find a shaper down there. And I'd been, I probably had five or 600 hours on a dozer up to that point. So we couldn't get the the guys down there that we wanted um, and the project needed to move forward. So I was like, you know what, I, ne- never a better time than right now. We need to keep this thing moving forward. I feel comfortable enough where I can get on the dozer and, and also the excavator and do some bunkers as well. Um, so that would have been unheard of, you know, back in when I started in the early 2000s for an Arnold Palmer architect to get on a piece of equipment or have the luxury of time to spend you know, eight weeks, consecutive weeks on a project uh, doing shaping and working side by side with the construction team. So as far as an evolution, we're getting our hands dirty. Uh, we, we like the design bill model. We believe in it. We're not fully there yet. And I think we're probably halfway there. One of the things that we're doing a lot different too is you know, instead of working directly with the shapers that the contractor provides, we're bringing our own people We've been fortunate enough to work with probably a lot of people you've you've talked to or have heard of um, to do our bunkers. I mean, we work we work a lot with Brett Hochstein, Jeff Bradley, uh, even Rob and and Tad work with us down in Naples doing some finish shaping down there. Uh, Riley Johns is another guy we've worked with, and you know that that not only makes our projects better, but that makes us better as architects. Uh, we're not siloed off, just looking at our own work and the work of, uh, you know, maybe other brand name designers. We're, you know, as a golfer, I like to get out and play other people's golf courses. So I think that's another thing that makes uh, us better as architects and as a company. Um, I don't know if you've seen any of our work for the past ten years, um, but I
0: Shingle Creek, we played well, together. Well, there right. you
1: go, <laughs> the shingle. <laughs> But, yeah, before and after that golf course, I mean, I think there's some noticeable differences of what we would have done when I started at Palmer and what we're doing now. Um, a lot more, you know, center line bunkers issues that are, are, are uh, instead of bunkering holes left and right, you know, taking one bunker and just putting it right on the center line is something we would not have even considered uh, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, but we we find that that's you know if you provide the appropriate amount of width on either either side of that bunker, that's a great way to create a, a very interesting golf ball that's that's asking good questions of, of the people that are playing it.
0: Now for a quick word from our sponsor, Fat Cork uh this is fatcork.com they do awesome delivery champagne it is a champagne club you can buy individual bottles from them or you can join the club they have a couple different levels of it they are shipped out quarterly so you can get four bottles of champagne a quarter eight bottles of champagne a quarter or 12 bottles of champagne a quarter based off of what you're looking for why this is cool and why I think it really fits with what we're talking about today is we love going to see unique golf courses because they're all different. That's the allure of chasing around, trying to find the great golf course, trying to go play the course that you haven't seen, going to Scotland to experience these great golf courses, is we love unique things. And that's exactly what this champagne is. Fat Cork goes and they work directly with the growers of the grapes. So the way the champagne industry works is the growers, 90% of the grapes they sell for mass production. 10%, the best 10% they keep from themselves and they make their own bottles. These are those bottles. These are super unique. They're one-of-a-kind bottles. You can't go down to Binnie's or Total Wine wherever you wherever you shop and buy these bottles of champagne. You have to you, you get them from Fat Cork because they're getting them directly from those growers. So uh, this is a great Valentine's Day gift If your partner is into champagne If you're into champagne It's a great gift for yourself And they have a good deal for us uh, Shipping alcohol is expensive If you go to fatcork.com And use the promo code GOLF You will get free shipping uh, This is an awesome company I loved champagne they sent us uh my my wife my mother-in-law my my sister they all loved it we had it around the holidays i'm getting more for valentine's day and uh it's something awesome to try out so go to fatcork.com use the promo code golf and thank you for the support what would you say uh pushed this evolution in uh, change in ideology what was really the the thing that that pushed you guys into changing i think it's you know there's a good quote if you don't
1: like change you're gonna like irrelevancy even less so as for myself and my design partner brandon johnson i think the guys that are really passionate about this business are golfers first and foremost and the golf courses that we like to play and the ones that we were comparing notes on 10 or 15 years ago weren't necessarily Palmer golf courses. Like, man, these guys are doing stuff that uh, we need to take some notes. We need to change our approach. How are they getting these results? How, why are they creating golf courses that you and I would rather go play than some of the stuff our firm has, has done in the past? And I think that was probably the turning point. And also you know competing for jobs and getting beat out by some some guys that uh, you know think you know what we can we can do work just as good as they can, but uh but yeah, I, th- I think it's time for a change
0: what was the toughest thing about pushing like a i this is a significant cultural change within your company what was the heart when you look back and and to where you've gotten today, you said you're about halfway to where you want to be yeah what was the most difficult aspect of that?
1: I think uh, the the biggest turning point was the work we did at Bay Hill back in 2009. And that was Mr. Palmer's baby. Uh, he loved watching the tour pro struggle on his golf courses. And to this day, I think it ranks as the hardest golf course on tour.
0: Yeah, um, <laughs> bloodbath every year. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah, man. But uh, and it kind of has, has always been that way, but it was kind of. They, they kind of tricked it up to get there, we thought. Uh, the rough was super thick. Uh, it was very penal in, in nature. And he said, you know what? I, I've reduced this golf course to a par 70 to try to, you know, really challenge these guys. But there was so much blowback from guys that couldn't reach. Like the fourth hole was a it was basically a 520-yard uphill par four. They just moved the tee up uh 40 yards, and it made it a 480 uphill, often played into the wind. A lot of guys couldn't really reach that golf hole in two as a par four uh, with a driver and an iron, um, and it kind of had this forced layup. So he wanted to turn it back into a par five. We convinced him the best way to do that was to really shrink the target up, elevate the green, and, and make it difficult to hit in two, um, but also provide a lot of uh, – apron cut around the green so if they missed that green the ball just really ricocheted and got to roll in and created some difficult uh, shot selection recovery options around the green and he came out and that was the very first golf hole we did and it, you know he his eyebrows raised was like man this is way different you know who who did this and everybody looked at me <laughs> so I had to explain myself and I was like well you know we, we talked about uh, you know some things we want to do I know it's different than the old golf hole and we we did a 360 degree around that green with him, and he, uh, he looked at me and smiled, slung his arm around me and he said, I like this. Let's do some more of this. So that felt to me that that was permission for Brandon and I to make some bigger changes through the entire golf course. And also not just Bay Hill, but that kind of opened us up on everything else in our portfolio to go back and really create some thoughtful options on our golf courses, take out a lot of the bunkering create some uh, shortcut around the greens and recovery options, you know, all those things you hear about today. um, We've been slowly, but surely implementing those into our portfolio of almost 300 golf courses for the past 10 years. Hopefully the industry is taking notice. I I don't know. I'm kind of hard to tell being on the inside, Um, but it's nice to get feedback uh, every now and then from people that are like, Hey, we played, uh, Satikoy uh prior to the renovation. We played it post-renovation is so much better. You know, thank you for the work you guys did out there. So those are yes, music to our ears. We're pushing things in the right direction. We just need more opportunities, not only on those renovations, but also new golf courses to uh kind of flex these new uh design build muscles and this new philosophy, if you will.
0: I imagine working for someone like arnold palmer and or and you could sub in jack nicholas or gary player into this conversation is when you're young you're a young architect part of you wants to build your ideas but then part of you understands i need to build things that look like what arnold palmer wants like you is there a little bit of a a difficult was it difficult developing your own personal style while working under one of the legends of the game that had built hundreds of courses before you got really became established as an architect. That's
1: very insightful, Andy. <laughs> and that's exactly what I faced, you know, graduating from college. Obviously, I wanted to stay employed there. So I wanted to do things that Mr. Palmer and Ed C., who was his number one guy, my da- daily boss there in Ponte Beach, things that they liked. Um, I continue to push the envelope where I thought I could, um, but you know, I also I am a bit of a people pleaser, and I loved you know the uh, <laughs> the industry that I was in, and I didn't want to I'd rock the boat too much. So I think it's a matter of it's probably the first five years, just getting that first project, getting the credibility, also keeping your eyes open, paying attention to things that are moving the needle in the rest of the golf industry, things that you like having conversations with Ed C and Arnold and, and um, like, how can we continue to improve? I mean, that was one of the great things about Mr. Palmer is he was always trying to evolve. He was always getting better. Uh, He was always young at heart, right? Um, Even though he, he he wore the same, you know, hard collar golf shirts every day of his life. uh, (laughs) He was always trying to find something on the golf course, always trying to find a new piece of equipment so, I mean, I, I think he understood the need to evolve as a as a design company to, to continue to get better and respond to the changing taste in the industry and also set trends where we could. Um, so that felt like to me, you know, I've, I've been there uh, 25 years. I started in 97 as an intern. So it probably has been, what, 25, 26 years now. It's crazy just to try to add this up. But it probably took 15 or 16 years to where working for Mr. Palmer to where I felt comfortable starting to maybe question some of the old ways and uh, put some of my own spin on what uh, what I thought thought Arnold Palmer Golf Course needed to be to stay relevant relevant as a company. And also, I'd like to credit Brandon Johnson for that. I mean, because he supported me, I don't know if I would have been nearly as bold if it weren't for his support and vice versa, because we were both saying the same things like, man, this, what, what what they did there, that just sucked, man. We can do so much better than let, let's, let's figure out a way to do this better. And um, so that's, that's what we've been doing.
0: I, I think about y- your situation, right? I, you know, it's it's a lot different than a lot of architects that have gone on their own. Um, that being said, your career path you know, in terms of of experience and seeing a lot of different, a wide array of different types of projects in different places, you know, the benefits of going with a big firm like Arnold Palmer into the sense of, for you personally, as a golf architect, you were exposed to so much right off the bat versus, you know, a lot of young architects that go kind of on their own are just wondering what's hap- what what their next job is. They're on their one job and don't know what their next job is. You know, whether it be I might pick up some work here for for Gil, I might pick up some work over here for somebody else, like and they're piecing together. But you're you're li- I mean, you were you were part of construction crews like pumping out golf courses and but then you also saw a seismic shift in the way golf courses were built and you were on the side that it shifted away from.
1: Right. I, I, I don't, I don't know if there's a question in there. Uh, yeah. I,
0: I, there wasn't really a question. Okay. I, uh, I apologize. Okay. Well, that's okay.
1: Um, more of an observation.
0: <laughs> yeah. I just, I, I think that's a, uh, it's a, it's a very, you know, I, I think, cause I think about a lot of times, you know, what is the best path for a golf architect? And, and I, I imagine sometimes you, you wonder, How would my life be if I wasn't with this big firm that my name's not on the door? Is there ever, has there ever been an inkling of, of you know, in terms of of latent design versus you know, you're you're designing golf courses for Arnold Palmer Design?
1: Well, I think you know if when when I first got in this business, um, even before I started with Palmer, I'd, I'd never thought of staying with the fern that I started with forever. It just kind of ended up that way. Um, You know, we'll see if there's still a demand for the Palmer name. I mean, it's so far we've, you know, we've got so many golf courses of service. It's still there. I want to do new golf courses. It seems like that's, that's a bit of a uphill battle without Mr. Palmer around to do the grand openings to rub elbows with the clients um, the bitter irony is I think that we're doing the best work we've ever done right now. I know we are. I mean, I can say that unequivocally, but it's harder than ever to get work uh, without Mr. Palmer around. So, we'll, you know, I, I don't want to say never, um, but things are still good with the Palmer brand. I think it's still strong. I think the work that we've done for the past decade is starting to, to turn some heads in a good way. Um, so hopefully we'll get those new golf courses, but that's where my heart is at. Our renovations are great. I love seeing the difference that we can make on some of our old courses in our portfolio. Also some stuff that, uh, what like Satico, I mean, that wasn't a Palmer course. It was a, a Billy Bell Jr. Course, uh, there in Ventura. Um, but you know, those are kind of one-offs. I'd like to do more of those. But again, my heart is in creating something new, bringing the things I've learned to Over the past three decades, to bear on a new piece of property, getting that that once in a lifetime site that's you know hopefully somewhere on the ocean, a big sandscape with uh, you know 400 acres to put a golf course wherever you want. I'd love to be able to sink my teeth in that um, and help shape that. Um, So as far as if that's under Palmer or Leighton Design, I I don't know. Um, Yeah, you know, I've got no real preference and I've got no ego uh, in that regard. I just want to do great golf. Um, for myself and my friends, hopefully if we're scratching our own itch, there'll be people like you and and a whole, uh, you know, group of golfers out there that it resonates with. And hopefully it'll be a little bit different than, uh, you know, I just don't want to try to emulate the minimalist movement and and all those little variations of it. I want to do something different, um, so we'll see. We'll see where we end up. It, it all depends on the side and the client, right? If we can get there, then the sky's the limit.
0: You, you talked earlier about, um, you know, uh, Uruguay and building, really like stepping in and building the majority of features down there because of of shaping needs and and everything. With With your life as a golf architect, what is the toughest thing from going to being going from being predominantly an editor where you look at what somebody else built and say, Hey, I, I like this. I would change this. I might move this here. I want this to flare up to being an editor and the creator of the work. Yeah.
1: I think when you're dealing with being an editor, you're probably holding back a little bit. Because you want to, I, I think a good architect enlists the creativity of their shaping talent. They get them on board, they engage, they want the the, the the shaper to have some artistic license. So you're probably not getting 100% of what you want, wanted or envisioned. And when you're editing and, and a lot of cases you're getting something better, but when you've when you get on that dozer as an architect, you're the one that's on the hook, right? It's like, man, if you don't like it, <laughs> there's, there's no one to point the finger at. So it's, um, it's much different, but it, it has provided this connectivity before that I didn't have uh, when I was just on the drafting board and doing site visits to be on the dozer and understand how to manage dirt and balance each site and, you know, get the most out of it and create quirk and, you know, pinnable areas. Uh, everything that you're asking the shaper to do in your plans, or by verbal instruction, now you're the one that has to do that. And kind of these happy accidents that that come up when you're shaping, uh, especially when you're in your. I'm not an A shaper. I, I'm I'm a B plus at best. Um, so you know, even even I was even though I was down there shaping and you know, roughing everything in, there was a team that went behind me and cleaned things up. Um, so back to those happy accidents, when you're not that refined as a shaper, you end up like, man, I, I that was kind of not what I pictured there, but that's pretty cool. Let's figure out how to incorporate that, uh, that contour into the green complex. Maybe let's pull that green to that contour, or, you know, maybe let's cut a bunker into that, uh, that quirky feature right there. So there's, there's all these opportunities that arise in the field when you're there every day, when you're shaping your own, own work. That are impossible to have on the drafting board, or impossible to have uh, when you're just kind of jetting in and jetting out uh, bi-monthly.
0: You know, I've been to Uruguay, and uh, really? I feel like that's like a great yeah, yeah. Um, this was before I started the fried egg, um, but I felt I I was there, and I was I kept looking around. And I was like, "There's there's great ground for golf here," and something I'm curious. Uh, with your international travels what's the best um area or country for golf that nobody knows about maybe an underdeveloped uh country in terms of golf that could be a great golf country based off of the natural features yeah i was i was gonna say uruguay um Uh, you can say uruguay i uh, i say uruguay is that okay
1: they're, they're I frankly only,
0: like it's, it's kind of easy to get to from the U S too.
1: Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's only like two hours ahead of, uh, East coast time zone. just depending on which season it is, uh, right now it's uh, summer down there. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a small country. It's right across the water from Buenos Aires. Uh-huh. Um, you know, there you've got some McKinsey, uh, fingerprints down there at, uh, Punta Caretas, uh, and, and also the jockey club, uh, in Argentina. Um, but it's, if, for whatever reason, I think that, you know, it's just underdeveloped as a golf country. We were fortunate to pair up with, uh, with a developer out of Brazil that purchased 3,500 acres, uh, just outside of Punta del Este, Uruguay.
0: Yeah. And they, beautiful uh, area.
1: Yeah, it really is. Uh, you've got got the Atlantic Ocean right there and uh, just really great uh, topography, some cool rock outcropping. So we basically had uh, the pick of the litter when it came to putting our golf course on the ground there. And it's, it's one of the, uh, it's probably the most uh or excuse me the least shaped golf course that we've ever done we, we basically just built greens bunkers and a few tees and everything else is just on grade because they had this canopy of native bermuda grass it's a little rough in texture but once you mow it down um you know we didn't need to grass fairways there so we didn't so it's uh um, It's very minimal in its approach, very sustainable architecture-wise. I mean, the only thing they really need to water are the greens because they decided to plant bent grass there. Um, But, yeah, it's it's a great great model for sustainable golf, I think.
0: But as far as countries... Go ahead. That's why I've always thought about Uruguay is, like, you've got the ground. You've got, like, the... It's funny. I always think back to that because we spent a decent amount of time there. And it's like, you know, the the big thing is the geographic aspect of it is like it's summer there when it's winter here. So you get the long days, you get the, you know, the the weather when it's cold in America and it's not that hard. Like you're not you're not going to get crazy jet lagged like i don't i don't know i've i've always thought about there's great wine you know usually wine and golf go together pretty well um so uruguay is uh is a place now for a quick word from our sponsor lumen lumen is a great skincare company that we work with uh this is one of the things I'm trying to do in 2023 is take better care of myself. I'm out in the sun a ton, whether I'm golfing, whether I'm on-site at a tournament, or whether I'm just like out with my kid. And one of the things that I've noticed is that like over the years, this takes a toll on your skin. So this year, I'm trying to take a lot better care of my skin, and Lumen is making it very easy. Uh, one of the things I loved about Lumen was I went on their website I, did, I took this quiz. It took like five minutes and it told me exactly what I needed. This is confusing stuff. Like I'd, I've i never been on a skincare regimen, but now I am. Uh, the bundle that I am doing is the Anti-Fatigue Essentials Bundle. So it comes with a wide range of uh, things that I use. Uh, it's nice face wash, nice moisturizer with a few other things that help my skin recover and just generally be more healthy so i'm not the only one that likes lumen thousands of others trust it. they have over 5,000 five-star reviews i wish this podcast had that many uh that's that's good five getting 5,000 people to say they like you is a very good thing so uh they are offering a a free 30-day trial you can go on there and and get a you know free 30 days worth of their product like i said it's been really great stuff and if you use the code TFE, you will also get a free gift from Lumen. So I'm not sure exactly what the gift is, but it's, a, uh, it's an added bonus. So if you use the promo code TFE, you will get that. Visit lumenskin.com and use the promo code TFE to get started on a new skincare regimen. Now back to Thad Layton. Uh, with with renovating, you guys obviously do a ton of renovation work. And uh, I think this is obviously going to be a huge trend uh, with golf architecture in the next 20 years is that there's going to be a lot of golf courses that come due with irrigation needs. And we're kind of reaching that point where the boom period is all those courses are in need of refreshes. What's the toughest thing about renovating an existing golf course? The membership.
1: <laughs> now, to drill down on that a little bit, uh, you know, everybody thinks their golf course uh, has, is flawless. So that initial conversation to kind of pull the, the wool back and say, you know what, there's some opportunities here to do some things better. The best tool that we have to do that is before and after visualization. And that typically works best with, you know, showing like, this is what you've got with your bunkers, and this is what you could have. That's the greatest, uh, kind of selling tool that we have is kind of before and after and the bunkers styling and, you know, showing those things off and also green contours. You can also show those off a little bit better with a before and after rendering, but, uh, yeah, that, uh. That is probably the toughest thing about renovation. Also with the routing, you know, you, oftentimes you're stuck with a suboptimal routing that's surrounded by housing and there's no flexibility, right? So you, you've got to stay on those corridors. So you're, you, you've already got your greatest tool as far as a routing as an architect. I mean, that's, if, if you get the routing right, then everything else just flows from that, but you can't, you can only make a golf course so good that's got a suboptimal routing. So that's, That's probably one of the, aside from the membership, that's kind of locked into keeping things status quo. The routing is also a substantial hurdle to overcome when you're trying to improve uh, the golf experience on on a renovation. But you're right, Andy. I mean, I I would say 90% of the money that's spent on, on building golf courses is going to be renovations over the next 10 to 20 years because you've got these great you know, locations that are in these dense urban areas where people can walk right out of their back door and go play a quick nine. I mean, that's not going away. Um, I, yeah, I'd love to play Cypress Point every day, but uh, and I'm sure everyone else would as well. But that's uh, it's just not a reality. So how can you make these accessible urban golf courses that have already been set aside in perpetuity for a land use in a green space? How can you optimize that golf experience? But we think we're, we're doing pretty good at that. We got a lot of reps at it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that is, you're exactly spot on. That's going to be the majority of the market in the United States for the foreseeable future.
0: What's been the most effective? You described, uh, an exact question that I have in terms of when you're stuck with a suboptimal routing. And I think everybody that's listening has played a golf course like this, where you're constricted on corridor space too. You've got maybe homes or ponds on the right and left. How do you begin to improve that type of, like what have been the best strategies for you to improve that type of situation? Yeah, I mean, you're not going to
1: improve the, a long green to T distance because you've got roads and houses that are that are locked in there. Um, so the, the best that you can hope for is kind of within that golf corridor um, is to really orient people's vision inward instead of outward, uh, and that can come through some landscaping or some you know taking those. Uh, sometimes it's taking those that containment mounting that's on the outboard that's trying to protect these homes and bringing that inward and in, into play. Um, and that that was probably one of uh, my biggest gripes about how we built golf courses 20 years ago is just how we manage dirt. We'd move a million to 2 million yards on every job site, but it would all be scattered into this containment chocolate drop. Every, everything kind of every green had this amphitheater setting around it. And the best place to be time in and time out again was middle of the fairway, middle of the green. So it's like, how do you take the, that dirt And, you know, if if the scope of work is big enough and move it around to start to create these believable features um, and and more interesting golf. But that's really hard to do with, you know, when you're locked in with houses on three sides. So um, probably the most, the the easiest thing to do is just re-bunker it. Um, And instead of having bunker left and right at every fairway and every green, it's like, hey, let's, let's nudge some things closer to this. Let's have one bunker um closer to that line of charm, give them some room to bail out to the left and just not not be so uh, afraid of where golfers are gonna hit the ball because you're ne- you'll never control a hundred percent of the golf shots I mean you could put all the containment mounting in the world um but people are still gonna hit houses I mean that's just just the way it is <laughs> um but you know if, if you can get away from kind of this delusion that you're gonna contain, all these golf shots, it's like, Hey, let's just make this golf course better instead of uh, risk mitigation. Then, uh, then you stand a chance at creating something special, maybe not top 100 um, but certainly move the needle in the right direction for a golf course that may have been stuck and lingering in its own respective market, uh, trying to gain members.
0: Yeah. When I think about those, that type of golf course, I always feel like the holes um almost fail to set hard like if you just created harder angles it would great vastly improve the the course in the sense that everything like you you alluded to, everything pushes you to the middle <clears throat> and it doesn't then kind of shift you know and i i think that's something i saw at at shingle creek from your guys' work and especially looking at before and afters is yeah. that the greens all of a sudden created angles and lines of play in in positions where you know it wasn't the most desirable place, but at least it gave you something to think about.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, it, Shingle Creek is uh, kind of a one-off for us in that it was a core golf course. I mean, you had the hotel, but for the most part, yeah. you didn't have houses left and right. So we were able to create enough width to where the angles really mattered. Um, but that's that's easier said than done uh, on development golf, right, where you've got a three, yeah. 300-foot corridor. There's only so much width you can gain and only so close to the center line you can nudge those issues before it starts to um, b- become an issue for the, the homeowner. So um, it's, it's a fine line. I mean, I think you can introduce strategy and angles to a degree in a traditional development um, and all the new stuff that we're doing—I uh, don't know if you're, you've played Lakewood National, um, but it's a 36-hole course down in the Bradenton, Tampa area. But I think it's worth a look. I mean, I think that's—that was a project that Brandon did as a
0: 36-hole job. And it's a, we they actually, had a Corn Ferry tournament there. That, they that's still exactly have it, right? right. Yeah, yeah.
1: and uh, yeah, just right out of the gate, I think the golf course basically his grand opening was the Corn Ferry. Tour event. It was. It didn't take long before it was. You know, went from being grown in and built to uh, hosting that event. But from what I understand, it's a pretty successful. Uh, it's a well received golf course for the pros, and it's a bit unusual uh, in a development sense. And I credit Brandon for really, you know, towing the line when it came to standing up to the developers. And saying, you know what? This is the, the land plant you have. That's fine. That's something we would have done twenty years ago. But there's something that's so much better. Let us, as landscape architects and golf course architects, take another look at this land plan. Um, we can still get the same lot yield for you, but we can also make the golf course better. And when the golf course better, that's a rising tide that lifts all boats, right? So if if this golf course is ranked, if it's one of the better golf courses in a very competitive market, in, in that uh, Tampa market, then you're going to be able to justify higher greens fees, higher home sales. So to Lenar's credit, they they listened uh, to that argument. They let us reroute uh, the golf course. And It was all just in theory. It was all just planned. There was nothing built. It was a blank slate. But they had a certain perform a uh, certain amount of lot real estate frontiers they wanted to gain, and we were able to have the best of both worlds. But it took pushing back and not just accepting the job face value and designing within these corridors, but with a, a routing that was done by a not a golf course architect, right? It was just done by a land planner and or the developer to achieve, you know, a number that they pulled out of their hat that looked looked good on paper. So in order, you know, yeah, there'd be a lot of renovations, but there also be a lot of new developments. So to the golf course architects and developers out there that are looking to new properties, I would encourage them to to do it different right let's let's uh let's get away from these ideal uh lot counts and you know um and these long green to tee let's make a walkable development golf course um i mean what a great turn of events that would be if like man, this is yeah this is the way we used to do it but now i can you know get off of work at four thirty. Uh, and and go go walk nine holes on a golf course that I live on, and it's a modern golf course. It's not something that uh, was built, you know, a hundred years ago. Um, so, so I, I think there's still a path. I think you can have your cake and eat it too when it comes with development golf. And I think Lakewood National is a great model for what development golf could be. So I'd encourage you to go see it if you're in the area.
0: You talked about the containment mounting, and I've always thought if they just took that earthwork and moved it into the line of play, it would be, you know, like I look at those containment mounds and it's like, well, you know, you think about some of the the coolest holes in golf, they play over contours about the same size. And I always just wonder if the containment mounds were the center of the fairway, how cool the the golf holes could be. Absolutely. I mean, you look at
1: the old course, I mean, there's no containment mounding there. <laughs> Yeah. all the contours are right down the center line and they're they're hiding bunkers I mean it's breaking every rule of you know rule of golf course architecture that there is out there and I think the more you can break those rules um, the, the better chance you have at creating something that's worthwhile and is' going to endure but yeah I agree man it's we had it wrong for so long and you know maybe you could blame that on a litigious society it's like well this architect uh, didn't you know if, if, if you're an expert witness, this architect didn't use go through his due diligence process and exercise uh, his his good judgment in, uh, in how he moved this dirt. He should have done a lot of containment mounting. So that's just uh, maybe one example of how golf in the United States is you know dies on the altar of of uh, trying to serve too many masters.
0: Mm-hmm. We got to ask what what are a few of your favorite Arnold Palmer stories few of my
1: favorite arnold palmer stories
0: maybe one maybe two
1: yeah we got to go to scotland with him uh to look at a property in the highlands uh regrettably that that golf course didn't happen but that was one of castle uh,
0: stewart right
1: yeah yeah it's been a salt in the wound but uh but that's all right (laughs) so yeah we uh we got to go over with Mr. Palmer and tour this just stunning site. It was one of these opportunities like, yeah, this is, this is worth waiting 20 years on, right? We're going to do this. We're working with Mark Parson and, and, uh, and walk the center lines with, uh, with Mr. Palmer. And he was really excited about it. And uh, we, just, just to spend three days with him on site in Scotland was a, was a time I'll never forget. It's just all the stories he told, uh, the, uh, the scotch, the stories we heard over, you know, a bottle of scotch and then, uh, then flying back with him. Brandon and I got up really early that day. Uh, it was, you know, in the summer, the sun comes up at like 4 a.m. So Brandon went out and I went out and played uh, 18 holes on Castle Stewart. by It was like 7 a.m. Had breakfast, got on the plane with Mr. Palmer, uh, flew back to Latrobe. And there was still four hours of daylight, and we played another eighteen at Latrobe Country Club. So that was one of those. Uh, that was a pretty cool day.
0: It's a great day. I mean, yeah, play I'd say so. play, go- play golf like ten hours apart. Um, it's pretty pretty incredible. What uh, what golf courses are, inspire you the most?
1: I always say Pacific Dunes. Um, it was it was a golf course that I think. The first cover shot I saw of it on, uh, I think it was the cover of Lynx magazine. And uh, what year did that golf course open? Is that 2003? Yeah, something? about
0: 2001 or two, maybe. Okay, something right around there. But it was one of those
1: shots that it was like, man, I, wherever that is, I got to
0: get to that place.
1: And once I did, it didn't let me down. Um, of all the abandoned properties, it's still a golf course that I that's the one I want to play the most. And just the, the routing, the journey it takes you on similar to Cypress point, um, all the terrains that you experience, the care they took to preserve all of these native areas in the foreground, mid ground and background, uh, the, the shots that it asks you, you to hit. Um, yeah, it's a great site, but it's a great piece of architecture, but as a golfer, it's something that I would never get tired of playing. Uh, I got to play national golf links, uh, this October for the first time. And it was always a bucket list golf course for me. And man, I had so much fun playing that golf course. Um, and and we played Shinnecock that morning and I played Shinnecock before and wasn't really impressed with it because I I think I'd lost like a dozen balls in the rough. This was prior (laughs) to the, the renovation that they did, uh, but it was it was a much different golf experience, and it just goes to show you the difference you can make with just tweaking some fairway lines uh, and, and expanding some greens, taking things back a little bit. But playing back to your question, golf courses that like I like and have influenced me, Shinnecock and National. Playing those two things back to back, I'm still trying to process that. But so far, what I've got is you know they're both great strategic golf courses. But in National Golf Links, it's it's almost like all the varnish is stripped off. You see every kind of that form follows function. Every form there is trying to do something with a golf ball. And once you play that thing a couple of times, you kind of know where those features are. But you can also see them and appreciate. Them. It's like you know all that veneer is stripped away. But the same thing across the street at Shinnecock, all the strategy is there, but it's just so refined and it's so polished. Um, but and and they're and they're on the same piece of property, arguably. I mean, they share a border, but how two different golf courses, you I know, mean, how two courses can look so different. Um, one can be such a punishing test in Shinnecock. Um, and then one can be so much fun. It's just, it's, it's still something, I mean, it's probably worth writing a book about. Maybe someone already has, but uh, those, the architecture on those respective sites being so close to one another are, are cap or captivating to me
0: yeah the the thing about those two places that i i am so you know similar to what you're saying is like the styles are so different Hmm. and you know like it's kind of the the perfect thing to point to when you you talk about how golf architectures and art is like very similar sites um different architects and completely different results. Right. And I think like one of the things that I've heard uh, from numerous people is that like, you know, great example about like the different architecture styles. Like you're talking about how, how punishing, how tough Shinnecock is and how, how fun and scorable national is. If mm-hmm. you to, you know, from what I gather, when women play if women, prefer Shinnecock they think Shinnecock's more fun because there's le- like the openings into every green is wide open right yeah. so you can run shots in much easier at Shinnecock whereas National has a ton of force carries into greens and you just think about like that difference right there is like completely different philosophical completely different styles right you know where Flynn was so natural and in the Rainer McDonald uh, architecture it's very manufactured for the era, right? You know, it's mm-hmm. just it's just a, a, a fascinating um, those two courses. Studying them, uh, if we could go back to the Pacific dudes, I, I'm just curious, what about the picture stood out to you? You said you 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 saw a picture, and it yeah it was
1: really- the yeah the 11th green, I believe that's the short par three, that mm-hmm. blowout bunker on the left, and all of the gorse and the marum grasses, and that green, and then you've got the the Pacific Ocean on the left—it just captivated me, and I, I just, as a golfer, I wanted to play that hole. I wanted to get there, and I had a friend, a guy named Diedrich Holmes. He worked for the first tee, and he would arrange a trip, an annual guys' trip out there. And I was—I uh, got to go with him uh, probably five or six times, and man, everybody would compare notes at the end. Like, hey, what's your favorite golf course? And it, it was pretty even. You know, some people would say tra- – uh, well, actually, a few people said trails. A lot of people said Bandon Dunes. And, like, the hair on my neck would stand up. It's like, man, how do you like Bandon Dunes more than Pacific Dunes? I don't get that. But, you know, that's, that's your opinion. Um, but, yeah, Pacific, I mean, I just – and even talking with uh, now that I live here in Denver, uh, I've gotten together with Jim Urbina a few times for dinner and we've gone to see some golf courses in the area. And I continue to pick his brain about that and just their process during construction, how they were able to achieve those results. And uh, just I I could study that golf course play it. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I, you probably won't hear a lot of other architects talk about uh, a modern golf course being their favorite. Like that, um, but I'm just being transparent. It's like that's that's the one that, pro- out of all modern golf courses, that resonates with me the most.
0: I think that golf course, and I don't want this to come across the wrong way, but I think resort golf. The more and more I think about it and look at it, I think resort golf, in a way, can be watered down golf architecture like if you put architects in in the same position to build a a private course and a resort course same land the golf course would have a little bit more zip pop like some a little bit more like oomph if it's a a private club than a resort and one of the things i think about pacific dunes is that golf course would be the exact same way no matter who it was designed for. And I think <clears throat> that's the thing to me that stands out is that and I think about it because it's the one course at that you truly feel a level of consequence when you're standing over shots. Where it's if I don't hit this here, if I don't if I don't really get this to the right spot the next one's going to be really, really hard and harder than this one. And I think that's a lot of times get what gets watered down at resort design because of the idea of playability and getting people around in this vacation golf. And I think yeah, I that, of that. you know, like yeah. that golf course does not, it's it's the same feel that you get when you play Shinnecock, where you're like, I, I have to hit this shot and I don't want to hit it, but I know I have to, otherwise the next one's gonna be even harder.
1: yeah, I'd agree with that he did dope didn't pull any punches with Pacific dunes, and I wonder why that is was that site just so special um, and they preserve so much you create uh, you leave things alone that maybe you would have watered down uh just to keep the integrity of that site and that uh just the natural be- beauty, leaving those things alone and not overshaping things that you know, maybe you end up with kind of an anti-resort golf course. I don't know.
0: Yeah, it's 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 interesting. I, like I think all the courses there are great. It's just that's the only one that, to me, really triggers the the do or die elements. Like. Whether people want to admit it or not, I think all great golf courses have like the truly, truly great golf courses force you into hitting shots you don't want to hit. I mean, like, perfect example is the 16th at Cypress Point, right? Nobody yeah. stands on that tee and it's like, you know, I really want to hit it at the silent green, yeah. but like, but, and you could hit it way left, but nobody's going to do that. And it's like, you know, like it, it's forcing you to do something you don't want. I mean, that's the thrill of golf and seeing if you can pull it off. Right.
1: Yeah. And that's the difference between tournament golf and casual golf. I mean, I, I remember talking about Mr. Palmer stories and really trying to get him to buy in that we needed more contour in our greens and talking about Augusta as a model and that that being a fun way to play golf and he looked at, at me and Brand as like are you guys effing crazy? It's like that's <laughs> Augusta's not fun. <laughs> you don't want to stand over a, a putt to, you know for a million dollars with you know, 25 feet of break and you know, that's not my definition of fun anyway. So he certainly brought this tournament mindset to bear that you know was was different than. The way Brandon and I thought, so it it was always interesting reconciling those two things.
0: That's a fascinating tidbit in in terms of like what you guys viewed as fun, tournament golf views as. Are you kidding me? And it might like it kind of gives you a lens into why you know so many tournament courses aren't really fun courses. Well, I
1: I don't think the tournament courses. I mean. I, I think there's a lot there's a, probably a general consensus that most courses on tour are pretty benign especially the, you know after watching last week you know Tory Pines I mean I'll say it it's just it's, it's a squandered opportunity right a great piece of property but seems like that's what a lot of the pros want it's just like the the great shots get rewarded and you know anything less than perfection is, um, is, is punished. Uh, but there's not a whole lot of quirkiness on that golf course. And when you introduce, introduce quirk into tournament golf, it seems like that turns a lot of pros off. And I get that. I mean, if that's your livelihood and you're telling me that my year is going to come down to whether I was lucky or unlucky, then, you know, maybe take that uh, that eraser and kind of water things down a little bit. So maybe maybe that explains some of the uh, general uh, – General shape and uh, style of a lot of the courses on tour, but it's interesting that Riviera is is one of the fa- perennial favorites uh, on tour every year. Capalua is another one. Those are kind of quirky, but I don't know. Maybe maybe those are the guys at the top that are you know playing those golf courses and winning, and they they can overcome that quirk. I don't know.
0: I I always wonder if Augusta wasn't Augusta, what the feedback would be if you like mm. just like basically. Copied the greens and put them on a new golf course. What what would people say? Because I think that it would it would be a, a very negative uh, feedback loop.
1: I, I would agree. I, th- I think architects that have tried to do that. I, I think we've tried to at least nudge some of our shaping on greens in the direction. You got to be careful, man. I mean, it's uh, people say they want those greens but I don't think they want those greens every day at their home golf course. And they certainly don't want to play tournament rounds on them. Um, So I I think there is a disconnect with what people say they like and what people want to play every day at their home golf
0: course. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so fa I I mean there's that's a whole rabbit hole um, that we could go <laughs> down. But uh Thad, I I wanna thank you for your time. Uh, this was great. catching up and uh I think I you know, I'm gonna make a make an effort this summer to uh to check out one of your uh one of your redesigns. I'm really excited to see the work that you guys have been up to in the last couple of years. Uh I I know one that is kind of in my on my radar is, is getting up to Seattle. Uh, golf club so I'm, I'm excited to see see what you guys have been up to and uh, it was really great uh, hearing you talk about the transformation you guys have been part of.
1: Thanks for the opportunity Andy I really appreciate it
0: Thank you for listening to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode was edited by Matt Rusen's Thank you, Matt. As a quick reminder, we are humming in Club TFE. If you're not already a member and you're looking for more golf content from us, if you like what we do, this is a great, great option for you. We are producing daily blogs uh, on the Friday website in in the Club TFE. So every day there's a new piece of content. Every weekday, I should say. Um, Sometimes on the weekend there's new content too. This week we've got a – we just posted a – our monthly video, which is a round table on Muirfield. So it's, it's fun. I'm talking with David Normoyle and Robin Dow, their historian at Muirfield. Uh, it's like a 20 minute video all about Muirfield, uh, maybe 10 minute video all about Muirfield. Also going up is a, uh, a course profile on Kingsley. There's a ton of great stuff. The, one of the neat things about joining now is you get the benefit of all the stuff that we've produced in the last six weeks, which has been pretty substantial. So If you are interested uh, in Club TFE, go to thefriedegg.com slash membership and you can find out more there. It's $120 a year and it goes really, that money is going, we're putting it right back in and adding more content. We're, We're scaling up and trying to do more. And thank you for all that have joined and the support. Thanks. And we'll be back later this week with another episode of the Fried Egg Podcast.